Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right, we got a couple smart folks here to talk cars because there's a lot to talk about. I'm going to let you literally drive this conversation. Kevin Tynan, he's with Bloomberg Intelligence. He's been covering the auto industry for uh, decades. And Elizabeth Behrman with Bloomberg News join us here. And Kevin, you're, you know, you're an internal combustion engine kind of guy. Have you, have you bought off <laughs> on this the whole move to ev is that really where the industry is going would you spend your own money on a hybrid kevin well well here's the thing right it's like so i'm a car guy and i'm a profit guy so (laughs) so you know that that's the thing people will hear me speak in my presentations and get this idea that i'm anti-ev and it's really not the case it's just Hey, and Matt, you know this, right? Fast is fast, and (laughs) a good car is a good car, and reliable is reliable, and all that stuff, and I'm fine with all that. I'm just saying that adoption uh, doesn't really happen because of the supply side of the equation when the automakers look at their P&L, right? It's basically as simple as that. And you have places, China, Europe, where the government is a little bit more involved driving that that transition a little bit faster than it here is than it is here in the U.S. Well, and you can see that the automakers just haven't brought out all the electric models that they easily could have. Mm-hmm. Right? Take a look at Ford, for example. The F-150, electric F-150, Paul, which you drove. Boom. It is awesome. Yep. But they don't have an electric expedition. They don't have an electric excursion. And that's they don't have an electric explorer. Is that because, as Kevin says, you can't? Because nobody wants them. Obviously, <laughs> they could. They could easily have made all of those cars uh, battery electric vehicles, but they didn't. And I don't well, mean nobody wants them, but there's just not the kind of adoption yet that they're even in Germany. Elizabeth Bermann joining us from Munich, right? She covers um, the auto industry across Europe for us, but that's where BMW is, and they haven't made. Uh, you know, a fully electric X5 yet. They they haven't electrified their whole fleet, even though they've gone further, Elizabeth, than I'd say most of the producers it, it, on the continent have. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would also say from where you're all sitting, which is namely in the U.S., I think it's easy to have a different point of view than from over here, where, you know, every other car in certain city centers is by now electric. And even uh, um, plug-in hybrids continue to sell very well. There was an interesting note out today from Barclays that was actually talking about BMW and um, how their um, electric cars are actually doing really, really well in, in terms of profitability compared to their combustion engine cars, which is really important. It is a very different market, right? I drove to Ohio for Thanksgiving um, with my wife, who is from Spain. For me, a 10-hour drive is normal, right? For her, that's like going from Spain to Poland, right? So, um, you know, 
Europeans just don't make drives that. But that's a Pennsylvania too. That long though. Oof. Yeah, it was. Well, there are good trains over here. So. And they and you have fantastic trains and. Um, I feel like the infrastructure is even better, right? If I, I can find an electric charger, any parking spot in Berlin or Munich, uh, it's yeah, not I mean, that but, easy but over again, here. Again, again, you know, it's, uh, Europe is more densely populated than many, many parts of the U.S., which is, is a big difference. And then there's also differences in taste. Like you were just talking about the F-150, which is one of the most popular cars in the U.S. And that kind of a car doesn't really exist over here. So right. No place to park it. I mean, so Kevin, yeah, you can't fit it through the roads. If yeah. it, if there were room there, they would love them just as much as we do. <laughs> right. You know, and that's a that's a perfect point. Is that even before electrification, um, you know, U.S. automakers had a hard, a difficult time really penetrating that European market, right? Because it was, it, you know, if you're a global automaker, you want to be sharing platforms and parts and nameplates and the whole thing. Um, what we what we prefer here, our infrastructure is just completely different. So you had our domestic automakers trying to make small vehicles, which were unprofitable and unpopular here for that market. And it just, you know, essentially wound up pulling out altogether in terms of we can't do that profitably. We're not going to try and compete with uh, that those European automakers in their backyard and and we're just going to do what we do, which is um, the preference here in the U.S., the bigger trucks, SUVs. So, so obviously different regions have different tastes, um, but we've all seen the same tr same trends in terms of pricing and supply chains, right? Um, the Europeans have had just as difficult a time getting chips as U.S. automakers have, and used, cars pri used car prices were off the charts last year, or this year, I guess. I'm already in 2023, um, on both sides of the Atlantic. Is that changing, Kevin? Do you see pricing really getting softer? It'll get softer from those peaks, but I think structurally, automakers, look, and I think everybody looks at the volume line and says, oh, this is, decreasing or this is declining and i think you have to layer in that price power and margin power over it and look at the revenue pool and say it's actually growing so fewer units but much higher transaction prices which is better for the manufacturers i think we look at it from the consumer's point of view that well i can't i can't get a twenty five thousand dollar cooper sedan anymore you know i'm all forty to forty five thousand small suv or mid-size suv and that's where the automaker wants us to live. That's that's orchestrated. That's not by accident. Your point on the chips, if I have a finite number of chips, well, I'm going to put them in my bigger, more expensive, right. wider margin vehicles. Hey, Elizabeth, in Europe, what are the European auto manufacturers saying about their expectations for demand? I mean, you know, with, with a recession backdrop, with the continued uh, war in Ukraine, what are you hearing from the, foreign, uh, from the European automakers? Yeah, I mean, just um, apart from the supply chain issues that Kevin was just addressing, the automakers over here have um, a number of other factors to deal with, um, namely inflation that's even higher than, than elsewhere. Um, and uh, there's a lot of push-pull and a lot of absence of actual firm, um, firm forecasts for next year, um, which tells you just how cloudy the picture is. 
But what I would say is that because of the supply chain issues that we've had, because of the scarcity of parts, there's a lot of pent-up demand that car makers are still working down, which by some estimates will take them at least into the middle of next year and protect them from any consumers pulling back as a result of having to fork out so much more to pay for their energy bills. Yeah, and uh, we saw J.P. Morgan come out today upgrading the Tesco supplier, uh, placing Pirelli on positive catalyst watch, oh. reiterating overweights on Valio and Farisha and Scheffler. Um, so more and more analysts are coming out with yep. bullish calls on not only the manufacturers, but also the um, uh, the suppliers that yep. Elizabeth covers as All well. Right. Great stuff. Hey, Kevin Tynan, uh, Bloomberg Intelligence, thanks so much for joining us. Elizabeth Behrman uh, from Bloomberg, Bloomberg News in Munich, Germany, giving us a great perspective of kind of what she's seeing from some of the European uh, automakers. But EVs, it is here, folks. Get ready for this transition. It is happening, uh, and it is something that the automakers are making a big, hard pivot to, and we will continue to have full coverage there. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Now, I want to get to Ben Emmons. He's in the studio with us, which is great. And he is now the head of fixed income and macro at New Edge Wealth. So it's a new position um, for Ben after, um, well, he was at Medley last, but he spent years at PIMCO as well um, after uh, being at a bank and at USC, which won't be in the playoffs. No, they will not. No, but Ohio State University will be. And Michigan. Yeah, <laughs> maybe we'll get a sweet rematch. In any case, uh, Ben, great having you in uh, in the studio. Talk to us about your new role. What are you doing at New Edge? Hey, Matt, Paul, thank you. It's great to be back. Um, yeah, at New Edge, I'm in, involved in fixed income, which is kind of my expertise. Uh, so I head up fixed income, portfolio management. It's also multi-asset. New Edge is a, uh, a new wealth management firm, mostly came out of UBS. Um, it focuses on... Uh, ultra high net worth individuals, entrepreneurs, maybe somewhat commonly known as other wealth management firms have. There's also institutional management. So that's all my expertise comes in there. It will be domestic fixed income, global fixed income, multi-asset. So go anywhere. Global macro will be still very strong. 
But we count on your notes. We count on your research (laughs) um, uh, that we get. Hopefully we'll still get those. Yes, you do. You do. It's deep. It's uh, worth reading, and it comes out quickly after events, so you'll still be able to produce that. Yes, for sure. It's very timely. So what did you you make of the jobs number on Friday? Because it strikes me that this market is off today um, because of that jobs number and because of Fed expectations when – we weren't off on Friday after the actual data. I don't get why. Although the initial reaction was that we jumped at least in, in, in yields, which made a lot of sense, of course. You know what I did? I did a very simple regression. I used JOLTS data claims, uh, ISM employment data, um, you know, other kind of leading indicators from, from employment. I just put them in a, in a multi-regression uh, against payrolls, and it spit out a higher number than was predicted. And I looked at the history of the regression, although there's a big standard error, but there's huge spikes in there. And each time that that spike happened, the payroll number came out indeed stronger. So it, it showed to me that there's huge momentum still in the labor market. Maybe I'm the example of it, right? Because I'm moving quick to another job. So it, it told me like, yes, there is a weakening of the economy. I didn't see what the ISM services was today, probably maybe softer, mm-hmm. but there's not like a labor market recession. There's maybe a housing market recession or real decline. But labor markets are strong, so you should be seeing this two-year yield closer to where the Fed funds rate is going to be next week, you know, between four and a quarter, five, four and a half. It should put some pressure on the stock markets, but it should give us the comfort that we're not in a recession as we speak. So I'm with Neil Dutta from Renaissance Macro. I happen to be his client now. Mm-hmm. Say it on air. Neil, good job, because he's right. I mean, this is actually an economy that's not weak. It's actually continues to be resilient. So we and had, the services number was good, by the way. Yeah, it came in a smidge better. Yeah, ISM services yeah. at 56 and a half. We were looking 50, for 53.5, yep. and it's better than the 54.4 yep. we got last month. Right, exactly. So some good numbers there. So, Ben, we had the gentleman on from uh, a portfolio manager on from uh, PIMCO last week. And PIMCO's historically been, I think, over the last several years, very bearish, uh, and they've been right he started getting a little bit more. Wait, you mean TCW? TCW, thank you. Yeah, TCW. And and now they got a little bit more bullish there. Is it a time to go into and maybe scale up a a fixed income portfolio? Yeah, you could. I mean, I I think we're, so the analysis is from from them and from other portfolio managers, yields are absolute level are high. So that is appealing, obviously. But then you have to keep in mind that the inflation has not fully changed yet. The core PCE number was somewhat moderate, but not enough, I think, to say, well, you can be full all in for duration, that is. Um, but what it does show is that we've gotten to restrictive rate levels, so it puts pressure on the economy for fixed income. That means that you, you can be, you know, scale in, as you say, buy some duration, get in some corporate credit, stay still high quality, because if there is a recession, credit spreads will widen. That's commonly assumed. But the duration is, I think, the most important trade here. Now, I personally like the front end of the yield curve because if the Fed is moving to this restrictive rate that could become over-tightening, that may look like that, then I think the one to five-year part of the yield curve is, is extremely attractive. If anything, as the Fed moves to a slower pace and is more clear about its message even, the volatility of the short, short maturity notes will decline, so it'll give you the better risk-adjusted return on the front end of the curve. So I, I would favor that. Where, where do you see, I mean, what happens to like a 10-year yield? Right now we're at 350, uh, 358. Um, if the Fed goes to five, let's say they go to five, five and a half. Um, five is not a stretch, right? That's just another couple of 50 basis point hikes. But 
Um, does it make sense to have, I mean, historically, would you see treasuries that far under the federal funds rate? Yeah, so I th think about the yield curve in, in this way, right? So the inversion currently is about really restrictive Fed policy. That's what it's pricing. It's not about an uncertain economy. Then the entire yield curve will be flat. All rates will be the same. So I, if you think about this three and a half or change of, of the 10-year that should go to five, that actually means that not only that there will be maybe, I guess, more surprises in Fed policy, you know, faster hikes, more aggression, but also that you end up in an economy that will be so uncertain that, that we don't know where we're heading with having too high rates. So that doesn't seem to be the case. The longer the curve seems to be signaling more about this is a restrictive enough policy. It will get inflation at least start trending down. It may not get to 2%, but at least start really consistently trending down. Therefore, it should stay below the Fed funds rate, whereas the two-year, commonly known, should be where the Fed funds rate comes out at. It's interesting that the two-year currently is already trading for where the Fed funds rate will be next week actually kind of below. So it's already saying that the market is, or the entire treasury market is saying, yeah, Fed, you're probably getting an over-tightening zone, if you will. Your message nine on the Bloomberg terminal says, next big trade, yeah. China full reopening. Yeah. What's your call there? It is a full reopening. I've been very, very on that team. Um, you know, to actually my prior colleague, Brian Jackson, he's at Medley, he's a great analyst, good for Medley. He, 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 you know, he and I talked a lot about like, this implicit message from, from China has been about, you try to curb this virus strictly with these really mm -hmm. short-term lockdowns, but then you do reopen that again quick. It's not like what we did in, in March of 2020, a couple of weeks lockdown. So, so and again, I, I think the change that really happened was a number of weeks ago, allowing foreign flights to come in, giving them access to BioNTech Pfizer vaccine for foreigners to come in. That is a deal that they made in 2020. There's a larger stockpile behind it that may be used eventually for China too. But that's the first step to open your borders. Mm -hmm. The second step, of course, is to open you know, production again. China doesn't want to get to an economy that's at, at three. It wants to get an economy that's at least 5%. So I've just been on that framework saying this is an economy that is going to fully reopen. I think that's the big trade next year. And that does Good. mean a lot for commodities, right, and for other markets. So you can kind of see it coming through. Since the protests broke out, commodity yep. prices have been up. Yep, yep, good stuff. All right, Ben Emmons, yeah. thank you so much uh, for joining us here. Ben Emmons, he's Principal Senior Portfolio Manager and Head of Fixed Income and Macro at New Edge Wealth. New. Uh, we should explain the message nine, by the way. Oh, yeah, go ahead. For those of you without a Bloomberg terminal, it's like, you know when you had your AIM uh, away message? That's what the message nine is. Okay, so we got that out there, and it says, the next big trade. All right, let's talk banks. My former, one of my, one of my many former employers, Credit Suisse, first Boston, the first Boston thing is coming back, kids. We're bringing back the, uh, the gang. Allison Williams, she's a senior global banks uh, analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. She joins us on the phone here. So Allison, I've got Credit Suisse, the parent in Switzerland. I think I'm going to have a Credit Suisse first Boston kind of entity in the U.S. And I've got Saudi Arabia investing some money. Can you explain what's going on with our good friends from Massive. The Saudis are taking a 10% stake of Credit Suisse, right? So, Allison, give us kind of what we need to know. So, uh, Credit Suisse is restructuring, which they announced at the end of October. They're they're taking those steps, which continue to evolve. One is the, the raising of capital, which has been going on. Over the past couple of weeks, we've seen some um, pressure in the shares related to that, as well as a trading update given by the bank. 
But from a practical um, point of view, you know, two other things that they're doing, one of which is to um, get external investors for the securitized products group, which they are spinning out to um, Apollo as as the key um, um, investor there. And then Credit Suisse First Boston, as you said, they're rebranding the part of the business Mm -hmm. that really focuses on the underwriting and M&A. Um, portion um, and uh, you know bringing bringing back uh, management there as well as the name and uh, they're going to be spinning that off. There's sort of no details on how that's going to evolve, but we are getting um, in dribs and drabs different um, investors that are interested, and that was part of the news today. Well, the good news have is any... I, could, I could bring back all my Credit Suisse First Boston swag that I have, like my golf shirts, my sw- my hoodies, my bags. That's good news. Yes. But, Allison, have any um, potential investors been allegedly directly responsible for the live dismemberment of a journalist? I mean— I don't want to seem insensitive, but it seems like no one's talking about this. Can you really work for an investment bank if a murderer is one of the big main investors? I mean, I'm 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 certainly not going to get into uh, the politics uh, of the investment. Um, you know, I think that the difficulty with the Credit Suisse. Um, and, and to your point, there have been a lot of, of talk about sort of where the money is coming from that that's going into the bank. Um, but for the bank, um, you know, the key thing is to study and find some investors. And you know, maybe it's not, um, you know, maybe it's not the targeted people that they would like. Um, so it's good that there is um, economic interest. Um, but to your point, they do have to think about sort of where the money is coming from. How about is there a scenario here where? The U.S. arm, this Credit Suisse First Boston, were they spinning out in, into the public markets, Allison? I think that is where they're headed, and they're just really looking for, I think, some some anchor investors into into the unit. Um, but the intention seems to be eventually it will be spun off into the public, but there's no details on timing or, or what that would look like. So in Switzerland, in Zurich, or where, is it, where are they based, Zurich or Geneva? Um, Zurich. Zurich. Okay, so in Zurich, are is the plan here to really just focus the remaining Credit Suisse primarily slash solely on the private wealth management? It is. It is getting to, um, you know, U- UBS and Credit Suisse, if we look at these banks, uh, you know, over a long period of time, the wealth business is really the business that most investors are interested in because it's highly – it, t- it tends to be like highly revenue recurring, um, high returns on investment, and Credit Suisse, um, throughout some of the pressures that they've had, um, you know, sort of coming to the fore with some of their risk management issues, but also on a fundamental basis um, from some of these businesses, such as the securitized product unit, they are looking to really focus their efforts on the wealth business and then you know, spinning off these other businesses into these uh, sort of more creative solutions. All right. It's interesting to see, um, you know, how this story is evolving. And it does seem like, you know, there were questions, um, existential questions about Credit Suisse. Are we beyond that? I think that, you know, that the capital raising is, is close to being done. And I think once that's done, um, there there can be some studying Anytime a bank comes out and says that they intend to raise capital, 
uh, it's always going to be hard for the for the shares to study. There's always going to be a lot of volatility until um, that's complete, as you can imagine. When they had come out, and 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 two, when it comes out that they're the offering price is at such a significant discount, um, you know that tends to have an impact in terms of the um, trading price of the, of the shares, as you can imagine. And so I think as once that is done, I think that provides some some steadying. The trading or the profit loss that they're going to experience in the fourth quarter is sort of significant. So it sort of takes away from the from the shoring up of capital that they're doing with this deal. Um, but I think, you know, your, your question is more around, like, are we going to see things steady? We are. It's just a question of how long it's mm. going to take for things to revalue to the upside. Allison, just about 30 seconds left. Uh, talk to us about the new Credit Suisse First Boston. Is this going to be a, a boutique type of thing like a Lazard or, or Green Hill or something along those lines? I mean, it sort of looks like it's it's aimed that way in terms of focusing on the banking. I think what it does for the um, bankers and, and what it does for the company is similar to what we've seen um, with a lot of these boutique M&A spinoffs, right? So people can it's more of an eat what you kill, and the bankers' economics are purely focused on deals, and that uh, incents uh, the bankers to want to work in an environment like that. And, and allows for the compensation to be more directly related. All right, that's good stuff. And it'll be, uh, the CEO will be Michael Klein, who I know back from my days at Solomon Smith Barney. He is a serious player on Wall Street Global, uh, deal maker, deep ties in the Middle East. And I think we've seen that evidence with the Saudi uh, investment. Allison Williams, thank you so much for joining us. Allison Williams, she's a senior banks analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. She's been covering the banks for decades. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. We want to get right to our next guest, Matt Winkler. He's the founder of Bloomberg News. He does some other stuff, but that's kind of the highlight right there. Because I want to get right to his uh, opinion comp today, which is just really interesting. Talks about the energy companies. And they've been one of the sectors that has actually benefited this year when all other stocks and bonds and things like that are down. The energy stocks have done great. Why? Because oil prices are higher in part due to what's going on in Ukraine. Matt, thanks so much for joining us here uh, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Um, your, your column is entitled, Biden is right to question oil stock buybacks. 
what's the story here, Matt? Okay, so we all know that Russia invaded Ukraine in February, and we all know that the price of oil uh, went up dramatically, that the price of gasoline at the pump uh, fetched a record, uh, I think, $5 average price in June. And during that period, oil companies in the U.S., um, increase their buybacks over, you know, a four-week period, a four-quarter period, excuse me, more than a thousand percent. So what does that mean? It means that the oil companies were uh, getting more cash from their business faster than they could spend it or invest it, and they were charging the highest prices at the retail level for gasoline at the lowest cost. So if you believe in democracy, and if you believe that free market capitalism is a direct beneficiary of democracy, then you have to ask the question, why should the oil companies treat the invasion of Ukraine, the destruction of human life, water, electricity, you know, everything that we value in a democracy, why should they be allowed to benefit from that without acknowledging that they have some loyalty to democracy. What do you suggest that they should do? Well, what Biden Biden said was, look, uh, you could increase production. You know, we were releasing uh, oil from the reserves. Uh, Production is actually less today than it was in 2019, about 9% less. So he was saying at a minimum, instead of just taking all this cash that you suddenly have, and using it to buy back your shares and increase your dividends, you could have increased some production. Uh, and uh, well, they wouldn't didn't. they have responded that you actually have incentives out there for us not to do that? You know, actually, we talked to uh, sorry, we talked to oil executives quite a bit and always ask why they don't invest more. And the answer is always um, that this administration is not friendly um, to that business. And you see it, of course, uh, when. Um, CEOs go in front of Congress. For example, when bank CEOs went in front of Congress and they were in so much trouble for funding the oil business, um, and that's just funding it, right? So the direct... So, So, Matt, let me put it this way. Oil company profits, buybacks, dividends, highest in our century, okay? We're 22 years into the century, and you actually have to go back to 1990 to find a period where the largesse that we're talking about is as great as it is now. So it's kind of hard to have some sympathy, even if the oil companies are pushing back and saying, you know, uh, we're not getting supported. They've been supported all the way through the 21st century. The proof is their bottom line, and their bottom line is as fat and green as it gets. And so the question becomes, just like in the 1940s when other dictators were rampaging through Europe, okay, and threatening democracy here in the United States, should we at least acknowledge that and do something about it? Because ultimately we're all Americans. And it doesn't matter where you, what ideological spectrum you come from, we're all Americans and we all value democracy. So the, the, the question is, what can the oil companies do differently now, other than investing in new production? Because you say Biden's concern is that they're exploiting the current market. They could easily have lowered the price at the pump or put pressure on. That's something that they could have an influence on. And they didn't. Okay, there was no reason why Americans had to pay the highest price 
on record. Still much Germany. lower than people pay for gasoline in other countries, though. You know, I mean, I, I just came from Germany where we were paying $7 a gallon. Right, so look at when the, I hear people crying okay, about Matt, 450 But go back to Germany yeah. and what did they do in Germany? First of all, the governments and the oil companies didn't protest, said, OK, we're going to take some of your profits, windfall profits, and we're going to make sure that the people who are suffering the most get some of that benefit. And the oil companies in Europe, where you just were, said, we don't have a problem with that. And the British government just did that, by the way, following the lead of European governments. You have nothing like that in the United States. Now, in Europe, they really are sensitive to Ukraine because it is in Europe, okay? Right. It's right on the border. So they know what it means to lose your democracy. And so the commitment there is much greater because of the sensitivity of democracy at risk than it is here. But the oil companies here could do exactly what has been the behavior elsewhere. Should there be some type of windfall tax on some of these? Well, which it's, is what not they un, did. it's not unreasonable because this, these are abnormal times. That's when you impose extraordinary measures. And if we do value democracy, you like to think we do, um, there's nothing unreasonable about this, particularly since you folks every day were complaining about the high price of gasoline back mm -hmm. in June. And yep. you were making that Biden's fault. I mean, you didn't Mainly give us Paul. a parenthetical clause or <laughs> yeah. context that said, oh, this has nothing to do with Biden, which it really didn't. You just said, well, he's the president. He should be blamed. And I, the I, prevailing media narrative was it's his fault. OK, I, but I Americans think, are actually smarter than that, yeah. which is what we learned on Election Day just a few weeks ago. I mean, I think we never blamed President Biden <laughs> for the market You've got driving the prices yeah. higher. Right. Uh, no, but he was the just certain media. Outlets. He was the convenient. Yes. OK, uh, if you like, person to blame. And so, he did get blamed. What are the energy companies saying here today? Are they just, is there simple responses? This is just the market. I mean, oil's at wherever it is, and there's no refining capacity out there. So even if we pumped more oil. Absolutely. It's the indifference. It's the indifference to massive suffering throughout Europe. It's the indifference to suffering in Ukraine, the absence of even talking about it. Um, you know, people have literally lost their livelihoods and uh, it's happening every day. And this this dictator is getting away with it. And so do we want to be a party to that? Do we want to acknowledge that we are benefiting from that? And the answer should be no. And is Congress said anything here? I, you know, I'm sure the, the congressmen, the Congress folks that are supportive of the energy industry don't want any part of this. But has there been any movement within Congress to say, hey, maybe we should think about something like a war windfall tax or, or, or just a production bill that says, hey, you know, there's a war going on and we need to make sure we're not gouging. Or do people. we need to get into it a little bit deeper, the U.S., because that's what happened in World War II. Having the historical perspective would really help the discussion enormously because out of uh, the depression that preceded World War II came uh, the post-World War II boom and the ascendance of the United States as unquestionably the number one economy in the world, which it has held ever since that time. And you know that was born out of, if you will, uh, Americans coming together uh, in a way that they hadn't up until that point. And it was for the right reason. It was to defend democracy and create, as Roosevelt said, an arsenal 
for democracy. And it doesn't feel like we're there in this country. Well, no, it's, it's even reversed, right? Because the GOP, the sort of Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world, are already against giving any kind of um, financial aid, even just financial aid to Ukraine. Right. So, yes, uh, we who are so fortunate uh, to benefit uh, from our wonderful free market capitalism should understand that it comes at uh, a cost, and the right. cost is our democracy. All right, Matt, great stuff. Uh, as always, you can catch uh, Matt's column uh, uh, on Bloomberg.com slash opinion or O-P-I-N go. Uh, Matt Winkler is editor-in-chief emeritus of Bloomberg News, founded uh, Bloomberg News uh, a couple of moons ago. Uh, and he's got his comp talking about the energy industry. And wrote the style book by which I live. You live by it. We you, were talking about this He catches me earlier. every day, Matt, on uh, another mistake I've made style-wise. Well, you can and just split infinitives. S-T-Y-L go into... Yeah. I don't think split infinitives are in the style book. I'm just personally against them. Okay, good stuff. All right, looking at oil right here, WTI crude oil. And we were higher up at eight, $82 and change. We're now back below $80, $79.29 on WTI Crude Brent, $85. And can I go to the Paul Sweeney Personal Inflation uh, Index, Matt? I yeah, you like to look at regular it. unleaded gasoline, I know. I know. So, But it's you know it's, it's been coming down, so I, I like to quote it. We're here at $3.40 a gallon. How about that? I tell you, it's nowhere there in North Jersey. I'll tell you that. In Summit, it's like $3.70. The guys are giving me a 30% tax just for living there, I guess. Uh, but we'll see. But we got energy prices uh, pulling back here a little bit, along with some of the other commodities. All right, well, this Senate runoff race down in Georgia, it is, uh, you know, we're at the finish line here, and it is neck and neck as far as I can tell. Uh, but obviously, uh, they're going to head to the polls tomorrow, so that'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Cause that has and a, I think almost 2 million people have voted already. already. Right? Yeah, so that's a thing, that early voting. Um, yeah, it's a big deal down there. It's a big deal, so we're going to do a podcast on it. The Big Take podcast is going to focus on this issue. We Welcome, Wes Kosova. He's the host for Bloomberg's The Big Take podcast. So, Wes, how are you guys are, uh, approaching what is turning out to be a you know neck and neck race down in Georgia? Yeah, it has been uh, quite the race, and it's a little bit of deja vu because you remember the last time uh, everything came down to Georgia, the control of the Senate. This time, we know that the Democrats have already gotten control of the Senate, and so what we're talking about is. We already know the Democrats have the Senate. Why is everyone so obsessed with this race? Like, why does one more potential vote for Democrats matter? Or if Republicans get it, it doesn't really change the balance. So why is everyone so obsessed with this race? Well, because of the way Congress has been, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. you, you need yeah, an extra Democrat or two if, if they want to do anything, as we— uh, saw in the last of course of the last couple of years they there if you get one or two of them going rogue it messes up everything all right so it's, there you go we should have been on the show um that's exactly it there's two like really interesting things one is um if you remember the last few a couple of years joe manchin democrat from west virginia managed to really tie up uh, Joe Biden's agenda is just one senator. And um, it's it's easier for one senator to kind of go rogue um, and hold things up. Much harder if, um, you know, you have to have two senators to do that. And so uh, just that one extra vote can really mean the difference uh, if you have one senator who's uh, kind of crossing his arm and saying no. And then the other big thing is committees. This is like kind of deep into the guts of how the Senate works is if you have a 50-50 Senate with the tie, tie being broken by Kamala Harris, the vice president, 
the committee assignment and what the committees do and what they investigate, as we know, that's a big deal, is much harder if it's 50-50 and if the Democrats have one more than the chairmanships and all that kind of stuff that decides what the Senate does completely changes. So it's interesting, Wes. I mean, it just this feels like it maybe you look at Georgia and it could be a little bit of a a litmus test for Donald Trump and his thoughts about 2024, because the it's kind of breaking down along those lines in Georgia. Yeah, that's another really good point. We talk about that on the show um, today, too, um, because, you know, Donald Trump really backed Herschel Walker. He backed a whole lot of candidates. A lot of them lost. That's one of the reasons why Republicans are kind of angry at Donald Trump, because he nominated some kind of out there candidates and voters didn't like him. And this could be that last test. Herschel Walker, endorsed by Donald Trump. Um, if he loses, it's kind of yet another uh, bit of evidence for Republicans to wonder, I don't know, maybe we'd go with Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, or somebody else uh, the next time around. It just seems, I mean, isn't Herschel Walker claiming that he didn't even pay for his girlfriend's abortion? I know some people say that there was a check um, that proves he did, but it's kind of like Mike DeMone in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. If you get your girlfriend pregnant, then you don't even pay for her abortion. Doesn't that rub voters the wrong way? Well, this has been a pretty big issue. I mean, you know, so Herschel Walker, yes, he denies that uh, any of this happened. Um, and uh, he's the one claiming to be pro-life. Raphael Warnock, who's a minister, uh, is, uh, is, is saying, you know, uh, bringing this up. Uh, and it's an interesting thing that a lot of evangelical voters are siding with Walker, uh, even though he has this kind of problem that he's trying to explain. Uh, and it just gets into how complicated American politics uh, are. It just uh, seems like he looks Donald so Trump bad, had. right? Because whether you're for or against abortion, we probably all agree you should show up with a check, um, you know, instead of leaving your girlfriend high and dry and making her pay for it herself. And then... Uh, on the other side, there can be no greater star power in American politics than Barack Obama. He shows up to stump for Warnock. Isn't that enough to swing like everybody in Georgia? Well, it depends on who they are. In a lot of parts of Georgia, Barack Obama is the problem, not the solution. You know, like a lot of southern states, a lot of other states. In cities like Atlanta, they tend to be uh, more Democratic, but in the suburban areas and especially in the rural areas, they tend to be more Republican. You know, so Barack Obama showing up definitely gets Democrats out there. Uh, what's interesting is on the Republican side, they pretty much told Donald Trump, please don't come here and campaign for Herschel Walker because you're not going to help. So while Democrats are very happy to have one former president show up, Republicans really don't want their former president there. Right. And it's isn't it all about the swing voters? I mean, obviously, Republicans are not going to vote for Warnock and clearly Democrats are not going to vote for Herschel Walker. But the swing voters make the difference, don't they? Yeah, they do. And, and uh, Georgia is a really interesting state because, you know, there aren't a whole lot of swing voters left like we've seen this presidential races are decided by the thinnest margin. So most people have made up their minds. But in a state like Georgia, there's still like a big question. Is Georgia a red state or is it what they call a purple state? You know, it's kind of like it, it, it goes a little bit this way and a little bit that way, depending who the candidates are. And so if Herschel Walker wins, then it looks pretty, pretty much like 
Georgia is a red state because Walker has not been a very attractive candidate to a lot of people, even some Republicans. He underperformed um, the the governor who, you know, Kemp, who won very, very well. He got many fewer voters, which shows you that some Republicans who voted for Kemp to be governor voted, you know, either didn't vote for Walker or voted for Warnock. So if Warnock, the Democrat, is able to win, then like Georgia is the state that we're going to really be watching in 2024 is possibly voting for the Democrat. All right, Wes, good stuff. We appreciate that. Wes Kosova, he's the host of Bloomberg's Big Take podcast. Uh, you can get that wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, uh, this week, they're looking at the uh, Senate race, uh, the you know, kind of the walk-off, if you will. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.